Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 208. And yes, we have come to the end of the road when it comes to discussions about the limousine and its windshield. This is the very last episode on that topic. And it's fitting, of course, (laughs) that you had to wait so long because that's what happens in a wander. However, I'm sure you'll agree after you listen that it was worth the wait. This is Doug Weldon, in his own words, telling the story of what happened to the windshield in Dearborn, Michigan, on Monday, November 25th, 1963. And of course, you'll also hear directly from the witness at the Ford plant. What you will be listening to is Doug Weldon's presentation at a 1999 assassination conference held in Minnesota. At that time, he had not yet revealed the name of the Ford plant witness. Of course, we know now it was George Whitaker. And the portions of Weldon's 1999 presentation that are on the episode today, you will also get to hear some of the original taped interview that Weldon had with George Whitaker. That part is, of course, a tape of a tape. So you'll have to listen carefully. And not all of that interview is presented, but Weldon presents some of it. And, of course, the most important parts of it, we assume. And certainly more than what was included publicly thereafter. Of course, it was a few years later that this story would be revisited by Rick Russo and others as they prepared for a new batch of episodes, including one entitled The Smoking Gun, for the series The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Those episodes were produced and first aired on the History Channel before supporters of Lyndon Johnson threatened legal action. And as a result, the History Channel removed them from their active showings list. Finally, at the end, you can hear that section of The Men Who Killed Kennedy that deals with Weldon's story of the Ford plant incident in the windshield. And marvel at how efficient the world of television is at getting the essence of this story down to just a few minutes. A lot shorter than going on a multi-episode wander with me. But I guarantee you saw and heard more on my journey. And that journey probably wouldn't have occurred without first seeing it myself on the men who killed Kennedy. So as I say time and time again, so much in this world is so interconnected, isn't it? Oh, and one last thing before we get started. This episode is dedicated to Rick Russo. Thank you, Rick Russo, for filling in so many blanks and staying at it with me. (laughs) 
On August 15, 1993, I was able to conduct an interview that answered many of the questions for me. And one of the things, you know, each of us, have, you know, I've spent 20 years of my life, I, because of the position I take, I may not have the best-selling book, I may not have the accolades of my comrades because of the debate that goes on, but it has been a quest for truth for myself. And this answered a lot of questions, and it's totally corroborated. I've got to be honest, the awareness of the existence of this individual came to me by circumstance and is not attributable to any great investigative efforts that I can take credit for. I am still not revealing the identity of the individual at this time. I've given a number of trusted researchers the full information, unedited copy of this tape that reveals his identity just to show the veracity and to also, I, I guess, preserve it. I will reveal, I, I had promised him I would not reveal it until after his death. As I speak today, this person is still alive but in very poor health. I've been an attorney since 1978, and because I've been involved in the criminal arena, I have literally seen, you know, a lot of attorneys never even get in a courtroom, but I have been fortunate. I've, I've seen thousands of people testify in the courtroom, and it has been my job for really the 13 and a half, last 13 and a half years to weigh the credibility of witnesses. This individual that I interviewed was as credible a witness as I ever observed in the courtroom. I had to promise him I would not reveal the contents of the interview during his lifetime. And I'm revealing some of these contents now after successful appeal to the urgency of this information being provided for the fort to the American public. I'm going to read to you what he said, and then I'm going to actually let you listen to what he said. He had worked for the Ford Motor Company, and these are excerpts because it would take too long. He had worked for the Ford Motor Company for 40 years, starting in 1934. He never forgot what happened on November 25, 1963. The two lab men he makes reference to are now deceased. Here are some excerpts. Around noon, he's talking about the Friday of the assassination, we got it around 2 o'clock that he had been killed. So right away they called meetings to find out what we were going to do. Are we going to run Monday morning with the president being killed? We didn't decide on anything at that meeting, and being that I had charge of all power service, I was in charge of getting that plant ready to run or to shut it down and everything. So they decided they would let everything ride and they would call me on Sunday. So on Sunday around noon, I had just finished dinner. They called me up and told me to go in and make arrangements to start the plant up because we would have to start the plant up around midnight to get it going for the day shift and number two shift. So that I did, but then I arrived my normal time on Monday, and they had me on a two-way radio, and they had me on a Cushman scooter because I was covering a large plant. So I got a call from the vice president of the division, and he told me on the radio that I was wanted in the glass plant lab now. So I went down to the lab, and the door was locked. I knocked on the door, they let me in. There were two of the lab men in there and they had the windshield there. And they told me that we were to use that to, see now the car was a special built car. We were to use that windshield as a template to make a new windshield. And the windshield had a bullet hole in it coming from the outside through. You could see it from the way it was broken. But the car was in the B building where we had a repair garage and they had taken the windshield out. It was back in the glass plant. We were using it as a template. And to make a windshield, and we were told to follow it straight through until it was a finished product, 
and get it back to the B building. We were told if anybody asked us what we were doing, we were running a template for a prototype. After describing the process for making the new windshield, he noted, we laminated it, we took it out of there, it was a finished windshield. We took it to the B building, it was put in that limousine. Now that limousine had the entire interior completely stripped out. The carpeting, everything was gone. It was gone, it was nothing. It was down to metal, and they restored the whole interior. When I asked him if they stripped it at the plant, he didn't know, but he replied, I assumed it was there, that's what they did. Later on that day, he says, I met the vice president of the division, and I said to him, Bob, I said, do you know what they're doing down there in the lab this morning? He said, I don't know what was happening. He evidently knew, but he didn't want me to know he knew. That's the whole story. It was a good, clean bullet hole, right straight through from the front. And you can tell when the bullet hits the windshield, like when you hit a rock or anything, what happens? The back chips out in the front may just have a pinhole in it. This had a clean round hole in the front and fragmented in the back. He went on and said, I went on from there and I became superintendent of the division and I had the whole five plant divisions. I had the following exchange then incurred. Do you know whatever happened to the window? My question. As far as I know, it's sitting out in Dearborn in Greenfield Village. The original windshield with a bullet hole? No, no. The windshield with a bullet? We scrapped it. We broke it up and scrapped it. Were you told to scrap it? That's right. Who told you to scrap it? That was the orders the two lab men had. They got the initial instructions, and I was called in after they got their instructions. Do you have any idea who gave those orders? I assume that it came from the vice president of the division. I would assume. All I know is that somebody told me is that we want you down there now. I want you to hear these excerpts and weigh this person, how he sounds. So could we get the audio? The, the video, we're going to do the video. It, it'll be just an audio. It was an audio interview. But these are the excerpts. Weigh what he's saying, how he's saying it. I don't know. But what we got at around 2 o'clock that he had been killed. So right away they called meetings to find out what we're going to do. Are we going to run Monday morning with the president being killed? So uh, we didn't decide on anything at that meeting. And being that I had charge of all power service, I was in charge of getting that plant ready to run or to shut it down and everything. So they decided that they would let everything ride and they would call me on Sunday. So on Sunday, around noon, I just finished dinner, they called me and told me to go in and make arrangements to start the plant up. Because we would have to start that plant up on midnight to get it going to day shift on the number two shift. So uh, that I did. But then uh, I reported on my normal time on Monday, and I, they had me on a two-way radio, and they had me on uh, a Cushman scooter because I was covering a large plant. And uh, so I got a call from the uh, vice president division, and he told me over the radio that I was wanted in the glass plant lab now. So I went down to the lab, and the door was locked, and I... This was on the Monday morning, which would have been the 25th? Yeah. 25th? Yeah. And uh, I knocked on the door, and they let me in. There was two of the lab men in there, 
and uh, they had the wind, a windshield there. And uh, they told me that uh, we were to uh, use that. See, now the car was a special built car. We were to use that windshield as a template to make a new windshield. And uh, the windshield had a bullet hole in coming from the outside through. You could see it the way it was broke. So uh, we took the... the uh, Did you know where that windshield was from? They told me where it was from. I was a repair garage, and they had taken the windshield out. It was back in the glass plant. We were using it as a template. And to make a windshield, and we were told uh, to follow it right straight through until it was a finished product and get it back to the V building. And uh, we were told if anybody asked us what we were doing, we were running a template for a prototype. So. Lamination. This was uh, my entire responsibility was lamination. I laminated all the windshields where my department did. And we laminated it. And when we took it out of the press, we took it to the washer and washed it, we took it out of there. It was a finished windshield. We took it to the B building. It was put in that limousine. Now that limousine at that time had the interior completely stripped out of it. There were no Did it appear that that limousine interior had been all cleaned? Would that mean oh, definitely. The blood, the carpeting and everything was gone. It was gone. Gone. It was, it was down to metal. And they restored the whole interior. Do you have any idea, or did you ask anybody at that time, when that and when or where that had been stripped? No. Well, I assumed it was there, but that's what they did. But you did see the limousine? Oh, yes. I see was there, was, was there anything unusual that you saw on the outside features, the no. exterior of the limousine? No, it was still that convertible and the people put the new windshield in and we left. Later on in the day, I met the vice president of the division and I said to him, Bob, I said, you know what they were doing down there in that lab this morning? And he said, I don't want to know what was happening. Uh, he evidently knew, but he didn't want me to know what he knew. Uh, now, he's still alive, he don't know everything. But uh, that's the whole story. Now, I know that I saw the windshield. It was, it was located about three inches uh, to the right of the rearview mirror. I to tell from the windshield whether, uh, in your experience with windshields, whether the, the bullet would have been one coming from the interior or one coming from the exterior. You can tell from the way it goes in and out. So it, 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 uh, the the comes out on the back of it. You can tell which, which direction. So this, this was a... You just saw one evidence of a bullet hole. And was that, did that bullet appear to have come to hit in the interior first? No, it, it, the front. it came from the front. You had no question about that, that yeah, that no bullet mark bullet was from the front. It was a good, clean bullet hole right straight through on the front. And you could tell when a bullet hits the windshield, shoot it. Like when, when you hit a, a rock or anything, what happens? The back will chip out, and the front may just have a little pinhole in it. Right. This had a clean round hole in the front and fragmentized in front of the back. So no question in your mind that we knew that, that that windshield was hit from the front. Sure. Did anybody? That happened, and I told it just to another family. I kept it in the family because uh, I, I don't know whether it would be... Uh, I went on from there, and then I became uh, superintendent division.
and I had the whole five plant division as far as power services. No one ever ever happened to the window? As far as I know, it's sitting out in Greenfield Village. The original window with the bullet? No, no, the bullet, we scrapped it. We broke it up and, and throwed it. Were you told to scrap it? That's right. Who we told you to scrap it? Huh? That was the orders the two, two lab men had. They, were, they got the initial instructions and I was called in after they had got their instructions. Do you have any idea who gave them those orders? He's talking about going out to Greenfield Village later, years later. This was so before it was on public a, display. Uh, the windshield is the windshield of the winner. It's not public. It's a regular standard laminated window. Is that, that, is that the window? Zero to a hundred percent. How certain are you that the bullet hole that you saw on the windshield came from the front? Hundred percent certain? Ninety percent certain? I worked in the glass in, uh, industry for uh, 40 years. And I've seen all kinds of testing on glass. And I know it was from the front. So you're a hundred Why should you believe him? I think it is important to examine some of the reasons that support his credibility. He states this happens on November 25th, 1963. Just happens to coincidentally pick the only date in the White House garage log that doesn't show anyone checking in to see the limousine. He does not know anyone nor has ever had contact with anyone named as seeing the windshield at Parkland Hospital. Three, he spoke with me only with great reluctance. I had had the encouragement of his son. The gentleman's wife was very fearful. That's that noise you hear in the background. She doesn't want him talking to me. She can be heard in the background. What she's doing is urging him to leave, to stop the interview. Let's get out of there. Her final statement to me was one of fear, stating, we have family, you know. This guy has never researched or even read a book on the assassination. You didn't hear the whole interview, but he made mistakes that would be expected. He thought the limousine had been flown in from Houston, not D.C. He thought the Ford Motor Company leased a vehicle to the federal government for a dollar a year. We know it was 500 a year. But if he had been a student of the assassination, he would have had his story down pat. I mean, any time we're in court, if somebody has everything too clean, automatically the antenna has to go up. You become suspicious. He's never been to Dallas, Texas. He was only certain of what he saw. He would have no way of knowing that what he observed would be corroborated by other evidence, especially the knowledge that a unique geographical location in Daly Plaza would confirm the origination of a shot causing this hole in the windshield. Five, 
it was obvious that he was deeply concerned by what he, was, what he saw that day. He was concerned even as we talked this, to that day, he's in his 80s, that this information could lead back to him. He must have reflected on what he did that day very much since 1963. He was remarkably clear about his recall. He realized something was not in order. He did not try to fill in details about what others did. The only thing you'll hear him do is make assumptions. I assume this happened. He did not try to make up things to me and say, well, this happened, this happened. Only describe for me, perfect witness, what he saw. Why would he lie? This guy doesn't seek any attention or publicity. I had to promise him not to use this information during his lifetime. And again, I only have it now with the consent obtained through his son. I verified that he talked about this within his family since that date in 1963 on regular occasions. He had two sons. One is now deceased. The other son was a high school student in 1963. He recalls very vividly his dad, especially in those early years, talking about that at the dinner table. In talks with his son since this interview in 19, six, uh, 1993, I believe that he re regrets that he allowed me to interview him. He was very hesitant and, and panicked when he saw that I had a tape recorder out and wanted to interview, the, wanted to tape this conversation. I had to have, again, the urging of his son to, to, to get the tape. He's resisted any opportunity for me to talk to him since that time, but again, he suffered a stroke within the last year or so, and his memories and health have severely suffered. The most important verification that I believe legitimizes his disclosure is that when I interviewed him in 1993, he was not aware that there was any other windshield in existence for the vehicle other than the one he helped build on November 25, 1963. He was not aware of Commission Exhibits 350 and 351 that they existed. He was not aware that a cracked windshield was presented to the Warren Commission. In his mind, there is no cracked windshield in 1993 out there. He, they destroyed the old one, he built a new one. And when he went to Henry Ford Village years later, he was satisfied that that flawless windshield he looked at was the same windshield he made on November 25th. He goes to Greenfield Village, it pulls up the tarp, sees a windshield, sees this pure, clean windshield. He says, yep, there's the one we built. Not aware of all, these, all this controversy about a cracked windshield. Important to note that his information is corroborated by Willard Hess. The two recollections are entirely consistent with each other. The statement from this guy at Ford explains why Mr. Hess saw an undamaged standard laminated windshield because that's what this guy built and may explain why a hole in the floor plan was not discovered in Cincinnati. The car was stripped down to metal. Again, go back, there's nothing new. I claim nothing new for much of what I do. I talked about Gary Shaw and Penn Jones Jr. writing about the removal of the windshield within the first few days. In Mark Lane's speech on March 12, 1964, in Amherst, Massachusetts, he noted the Secret Service flew the car immediately to Washington where the windshield was removed and the car was then flown to Dearborn where the entire interior was refurbished, probably forever destroying a good portion of the physical evidence. 
Mark Lane was exactly right. Wherever he got his source, says exactly what this guy is saying. Roy Schaefer provided me with a United Press International report that was, came out on Wednesday, December 18, 1963. This is interesting. December 18th, this report's in the paper. Again, according to Raleigh, the car is in the White House garage till December 20th. The article read, Detroit, December 18. The car in which President Kennedy was assassinated is being refitted with bulletproof glass and armor plate for use by President Johnson. The work on the famous bubble top presidential continental is being done at a Ford Motor Company experimental garage in suburban Dearborn. But Ford officials in the Secret Service declined to comment. However, sources said the limousine in which Kennedy was killed and Texas Governor John Connolly was wounded in Dallas was brought to Dearborn under a cloak of, cloak of secrecy Saturday night. That would have made this like December 8th. All we got to do is switch to some, this article, that this information, to November 25th, and it's perfect. The article later made two other important observations. It was learned that the following work is being done. A new windshield has been installed, lending credence to reports the old one was damaged in the shooting. At the conclusion of the article, this is December 18, 1963, UPI. At the conclusion, it stated new trim and carpeting had been installed in the back seat where Mr. Kennedy was riding when he was shot. What do we make of that? If it refers to that earlier date, and we know that it, the car is officially received by Hessen Eisenhardt on December 13th, if somebody had gotten this information, all you do is you take it back to November 25th, and this is exactly what that man said. It's been stated often that secrets cannot be kept. It's clear that information was leaking out soon after the assassination. The Ferguson Memorandum that was written on December 18, 1963 has only recently been released. Was this at the time an effort by the Ford Motor Company in cooperation with the Secret Service to purposely distort the record of what really happened? In reviewing the UPI article, is it merely a coincidence that the garage being described in Dearborn and the work being done to the limousine is exactly what the witness I interviewed in 1993 asserted, except for a little change in date. Did the government's position get tangled in its own distortions and lies? The significance of this information, if you believe it, if you accept it, is overwhelming. It reveals a link of complicity by James Raleigh, Chief of the Secret Service, and Lyndon Johnson, the new President of the United States, the only two people in the United States that had the power and authority to approve of the movement of the vehicle from Washington to Dearborn. Don't kid yourself that Johnson would have been kept in the dark. Johnson knew everything that was going on, including his calls that I believe to Parkland Hospital, finding out Oswald's condition. He was on top of everything. And again, there goes another story that we'll, you can read in my book someday, too. Uh, it also demonstrates a sinister complicity by the Ford Motor Company in cooperating with the deception and criminal destruction of evidence. Further evidence of the complicity with Johnson and the Secret Service, I'm going to have to address at the, another time. Interesting note, you know who the first person to shake Johnson's hand was when he got off the, uh, Andrew, the plane on Andrews Air Force Base when he arrived back in Washington, D.C.? Close. James Rowley. 
First person. Just coincidence, but first person to shake his hand happened to be James Raleigh. Listening to these tapes is also listening to a bit of history as to how JFK assassination research has matriculated over the years. As you know, the House Select Committee on Assassinations completed their work in the late 70s. And of course, the last official inquiry of sorts came when the ARRB finished up its work in the late 90s. By that time, most of the original witnesses were getting very old and many of them were already gone. Perhaps Doug Horn described the matriculation best in one of his articles when he said that Doug Weldon interviewed Whitaker in August of 1993. His witness insisted on anonymity. Weldon reported on the story without releasing Whitaker's name in his excellent and comprehensive article titled The Kennedy Limousine, Dallas, 1963, which was published in Jim Fetzer's anthology, murder in Dealey Plaza in the year 2000. After Weldon interviewed Whitaker in August of 1993, Mr. Whitaker, subsequently on November 22, 1993, the 30th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination, well, he wrote down all that he could remember about the events he witnessed involving the presidential limousine and its windshield. After George Whitaker's death in 2001, his family released his written testament to Nigel Turner, who, with their permission, revealed Mr. Whitaker's name, as well as the text of his memo for history. And he did so in Episode 7 of The Men Who Killed Kennedy, The Smoking Guns. And for those of you who are still hanging in there and want to hear the original snippet covering the windshield from the Men Who Killed Kennedy series. Well, here it is. At which point a security officer of some type raced forward and jumped in the limousine and drove it off even as I was leaning against it to an area uh, back of us somewhere. And that was the last time I saw the limousine. The Secret Service made certain no authority in Dallas had an opportunity to examine the bullet damage to Kennedy's car. The Secret Service also usurped Dallas authority and removed the Kennedy limousine from Parkland Hospital and flew that limousine back to Washington, D.C. For over a decade, researcher Doug Weldon, a professor of criminal justice and an attorney, has studied Kennedy's limousine and what happened to it in the hours after the assassination. Just as the president's body in an autopsy could have given us many answers, a thorough study of that limousine at that time without evidence being tampered with would also have given us many important answers as to what really happened. But on arrival in Washington, damage to the limousine was noted. Charles Taylor Jr., the Secret Service agent who had accompanied Samuel Kinney in driving the vehicle to the White House garage from Andrews Air Force Base, noted in his report that of particular significance just left to center of the windshield was a small hole from which it appeared that bullet fragments had been removed. Nick Prentzpe, a United States Police Park officer, also had an opportunity to take a look at the vehicle while it was in the White House garage. He noted that there was a small hole in the windshield 
and based upon his many years of experience as a police officer, he noted that that hole had been caused by a bullet. Over the ensuing days, the car was scrutinized in the White House garage by a number of people. But one day was different. If one examines the White House garage logs, it is very interesting that in the late evening of November 24th, 1963, in the entire day of November 25th, 1963, not one person is listed as having come in to the White House garage to have any contact with the limousine. Rumors circulated at the time, always denied, that the presidential car was secretly flown from Washington to the Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan, for the removal of its damaged windshield. It is very clear that the only mode of transportation that could have been used to transport the limousine from Washington, D.C. to the Dearborn plant would have been via airplane. There are several airports in the Detroit area. It would have been a simple matter to transport the limousine under cover to its final destination, the Ford Motor Company's Rouge plant. The late George Whitaker Sr., seen here with his wife, was a lifetime employee with Ford and held a managerial position at the Rouge plant. He went to work on the morning of November 25th to be confronted by an amazing sight. He was astonished when he went to the B building where the garage existed at that time and he saw the Kennedy limousine that John F. Kennedy had been murdered in. The interior of the limousine had completely been stripped and the windshield was not in the limousine. He went to the glass lab where he was in charge of laminating glass and the glass lab door was locked. He knocked on the door and it was open and two of his subordinates were in there with the windshield that had been removed from the vehicle. They were under orders to take that windshield and use it as a template in making a new windshield. But what fascinated him, and which he discussed with his family and no one else until he spoke with me, was that he saw a hole in the windshield. There was a good, clean bullet hole right straight through on the front. Right. This had a clean, round hole in the front and fragmentized the front of the back. Mr. Whitaker had 30 years of experience working with glass and had seen many tests performed on glass, including tests performed with firearms. He described that hole as being in the same location that Charles Taylor Jr. of the Secret Service had described the hole in his report. And of course, without knowing that anybody had observed it before then, but he also was absolutely 100% convinced that that shot had to emanate from the front of the Kennedy limousine thus indicating that a shot had been fired from the front to his mind to a hundred percent certainty. I asked him what had happened to the original windshield. His answer to me was, we scrapped it. I said, you destroyed it? And he says, that's right. Our orders were to destroy, to scrap that windshield. After George Whitaker died in 2001, this statement was found amongst his possessions, reaffirming for future generations exactly what he had told Doug Weldon eight years previously. This document was discovered 
and for me it gave the final stamp of approval that what he told me on that August day in 1993 was in fact the truth of what really happened. Thank you for listening to episode 208 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.